Well, what's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I've got Ryan Wallman. Many of you know him as Dr. Draper on the Twitter internet, especially. Does a lot of witty banter and, and uh, about copy and about the state of marketing and especially about the words that we all use. And uh, Ryan, welcome, first of all. Thank you very much. It's, it's good to have you back. And second of yeah. all, you've got a book coming, right? I have. This is the first I've ever mentioned of it, but I, <laughs> I do have a book coming, or hopefully, <laughs> if we can get it together. But yeah, it should be pretty soon. What's it called? Uh, it's called Delusions of Branger. Which sick is... title, sick title. <laughs> Thank you. Kind of a phrase that I coined a few years ago and as a bit of a throwaway thing on one of my satirical posts. But yeah, it stuck. I figured that, that was my, it had become a bit of a signature, so that's what I'm calling it. Okay. What's the idea in the book? Or, or is it answering a question that you've got? I, I guess it's, it's a collection of pieces uh, that I've done over the years. It's really a bit of a mixed bag. It's, some of it's kind of longer form blog articles and that kind of thing that I've done, but also quite a lot of little satirical posts that I've done for Twitter and that kind of thing. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's really been, it's probably in a, in a way an accumulation of about five years' work, I'd say. Mm. Yeah. So, it's a, yeah. So, yeah. It's a delicate assortment of the drape. It's <laughs> well put. Yeah, that might, I'll, I'll put that on the blurb. <laughs> uh, like, so why do you think the world needs this book? I don't know if the world needs it. But, uh, so, I so think... hey, oh, hey, Mr. Psychologist, <laughs> so if the world doesn't need it, why are you doing it? <laughs> uh, look, I, I did it partly because I felt as though I needed a repository for everything that I've been doing because, you know, everything was kind of disparate. Whether the world needs to see it in one, uh, one place is, is another question. But hopefully I think there will be enough there for people to get uh, a bit of a laugh, obviously. That's probably the first thing because most of it is, most of it's kind of, you know, light-hearted stuff. But also, also a little bit of analysis about what's going wrong with our industry, about... Um, what I think probably needs to change. That's probably about the sum of it. But but it's very much going to be something that you can dip in and out of, and 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 it's pretty loosely put together in terms of themes. So so I've really divided it up into kind of marketing, advertising, brands, um, business, yeah. And it's kind of so it's, it's loosely themed along those lines. But and I, I haven't decided on a subtitle yet. But but I think it's along the lines of kind of puncturing the pretensions of the marketing world um, yeah, and that's, yeah. probably, that's probably where it is. So a bit of a reality check, I suppose, in okay. some ways. Okay. I'm happy that we've shifted from the idea of a repository when you could have used <laughs> the subtitle of like, I had to put some stuff somewhere. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Puncturing pretensions, that's a little bit more committed to yourself. Are, are you struggling with the idea that you're doing this because you are a prolific writer and it's, it's interesting to hear you self-deprecate so much knowing that you've got so much energy for writing, knowing that you're really active within that beautiful copywriting internet that's evolved in the past couple of years. Like why, why are you sort of mm. talking yourself down a little bit even though you know the energy around the stuff you put out there? Uh, well, I think partly because it is quite fragmented, you know, and I think that's part of even when you talk about, you know, copywriting Twitter, it's still, it's, it's short and snappy and, and kind of somewhat ephemeral, I think. You know, it doesn't, you know, most of the stuff gets forgotten after a while. And so I think that's part of it is I'm trying to make it a little bit more permanent um, and enduring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know why I'm being self-deprecating that. I suppose because, because of a lot of it isn't, isn't that serious. Yeah, maybe that's it. And, and yet there's a whole industry built around comedy and stand-up <laughs> comedy that's deliberately not serious that takes its 
craft seriously. I, it, it's, it's always interesting. I, it, I wonder if that's a bit of a tick from doing advertising where we, we sort of try to work out how to take ourselves seriously in the job and then we want to put something out into public that's not about the job, but it's kind of connected to it. And we're like, are we allowed to take this seriously or do we have to pretend that we don't? Because to do this work, you take it seriously. Right? Yeah, and I, I think that's a really important point, though, and, and topical one, because I, I feel as though a lot of people in advertising and marketing have, have started to take themselves very seriously, and that kind of infuses itself into the kind of work that we see. And I, I can't remember if we touched on this last time that we spoke, but, but you know, it's so much advertising that you see now is so earnest and, and kind of... Yeah, it feels as though it's trying to express something with gravitas. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of the great advertising just doesn't do that. You know, camp, a lot of it is quite self-deprecating and, and or, you know, almost frivolous. And I think I think we've lost some of that. Do you have any theories for why that? For example, as you reach for some answers, in, in New York, I've had it explained to me, some of it explained to me. Like, first of all, I do think the emotional base of... American culture is relatively earnest, despite the eccentricities, despite the extreme stuff people see in the media, despite the amazing creative and comedic talent that's here, relatively speaking, it's quite an earnest culture. And after September 11, I I was told that it became even more earnest because obviously that's pretty... It's a big tragedy in New York where a lot of the advertising agencies are. 2008, recession came, got more earnest, wars are going on. So that's, that's sort of some of the... There's some of the stories that I've heard briefly, really, uh, about my time in New York when I've asked people, like, why, why is this so earnest? Like, what, do you have mm. a point of view from your travels? Yeah, I mean, I haven't spent a lot of time in America, but, uh, you know, obviously I do get exposed to, to the American scene, I suppose, through, you mm. know, online. Um, and, I, and I agree with you. I think, I think certainly the, the output that comes from America seems to be probably more earnest in general, and I think that's probably a, a pretty fair observation about about why that is mm-hmm. and that's right I think the context sets you up for, for kind of having to prove yourself as as being serious you know as, as being part of a serious profession and and I think one of the mistakes that advertising has probably made I mean look I'm you know I'm no expert on this because I haven't haven't spent a lot of time around in in the advertising industry per se but it does seem as though a lot of people feel the need to prove themselves as being you know they just need to be seen as serious, even though the the what we're actually doing a lot of the times is not that serious. So, totally, totally, totally. Yeah, and well, I, and I think Australia and and the UK probably don't. Well, certainly historically, don't seem to have felt that so much. Um, mm. You know, there's a lot of kind of irreverence. More, yeah, in, more, in, in Australian advertising and and in UK yeah. as well. It's cheekier, there's more banter, yeah. there's more self-deprecation and those things don't travel through all cultures but that's definitely mm-hmm. in, in some of the advertising cultures. Uh, and, and for those who don't know, you were a psychologist, right? Or was it psychiatrist? Psychiatrist effectively, yeah. So, yeah. so I trained as a doctor and worked in psychiatry for, for quite a few years. So, okay. yeah. so obviously being effectively a psychiatrist, I don't know what it effectively means, but effectively being a psychiatrist and practicing that for a long time before moving into the advertising world. The idea of seriousness, I, I find quite interesting because I'm kind of curious about this because you've, you've, you have moved around a little bit, you've lived in different places. I, I have a feeling, if I think about how I grew up in Australia, that part of the Australian psyche 
that I understand is that we're not allowed to admit that we take anything seriously. And a lot of our banter is about putting people down, putting them in their mm-hmm. place. And to take something seriously meant that you were kind of fancy and thought you were better than other people. <laughs> and I don't know if you relate with this or if I'm making it up, but I, I'm like, hey, Australian friends, take some stuff seriously. Totally cool. <laughs> totally cool to do that. Do you relate to what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the talk poppy syndrome is probably the cliche around that and, and I think there's still a lot of truth in that in Australia. And, yes, I guess personally I probably have grown up with that culture and, and I do relate to it to some extent. And I think that's where the real um, schism is with, with American culture, you know, the fact that it, it, the, that individualistic kind of need to take yourself seriously is, is very much at odds with, with the general feeling here. So I don't know if you found that as an Australian being being over there, but but I, I, I get the sense that that there is a real difference there. Yeah, look, there's a lot of pressure on people to be an important individual from a mm, young, yeah. young age to understand what it means to be an important individual, to defend that, to not give that away to other people, even though no. eventually the system tries to weather people. So, so yeah, there's a lot of pressure on it. And you, you, when you went to a room, in a meet, or like a meeting room in an ad agency, for example, in the US, not everywhere, but a lot, you're like, whoa, what's, why is this, is this so serious? And why, why am I hearing all these titles all the time? And it is, you get a bit of culture shock from it because yeah. Australians, we pretend that these things don't matter because we're not yeah. sure we're allowed to take seriously, which can, I think, have a really, it can, I think there's a dark side to that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, th- I, th- I think there are, there are pros and cons to each, probably. Mm. But certainly, even in even in, I'm just thinking of the fact that the people that I know in New York who, who are kind of in advertising and marketing, the, even the titles seem a lot more kind of inflated, I guess, compared mm. to compared to some of the titles here. And, and yeah, it sort of reflects how people see those roles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you do you take your daily contributions to the internet seriously? Like, what what kind of emotions do you feel when you're in the act of writing? Uh, look, do I take it seriously? I, I take it seriously in that I think about what I'm posting generally. I mean, you know, the, the, of course there are the odd throwaway ones and and I'm fairly uh, regular in that I'll usually kind of post two or three things a, a day mm-hmm. and I try to maintain my presence there, I suppose, and, and maintain my connections to people. Aside from that, I think I, I don't have a plan Put, put it that way, you know, I don't, I don't sort of plan anything very much in advance. So probably if I see things during the week or on the weekend or something, I might think, oh, yeah, I, you know, I'll post something about that this week. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, it's, it, it's, not a, it, it's certainly not a very involved process. It's pretty, mm-hmm. pretty sort of reactive. Does it make you better at your job? Definitely, yeah. It's, it's kind of changed my, my whole perspective on, on work because, um, you know, I've been on Twitter for about probably five years, six years. And prior to that, I, I, I'd only ever really been exposed to the marketing industry more broadly through through being at business school and, and kind of, you know, I mean, I was indoctrinated by Mark Ritson pretty much. Um, but then it kind of opened up this whole world that you referred to earlier as, you know, particularly the copywriting community um, on Twitter. I started getting in touch with kind of marketers all around the world. And it's, you know, I mean, I've, I've learnt an incredible amount of, you know, every, everything that I refer to now it really all comes from from things that I've seen on Twitter or, or mm. blogs or, yeah, it has been transformative in many ways. That's awesome. Okay. So going, going back to, to the book, Delusions of Brandure, how, how much of it is a new unpublished content versus a collection of things that you've put out before? 
pretty much all been put out somewhere. Yep. You know, whether that's on blogs or articles that I've written for, for various publications or literally, you know, the, the, the little posts that I do on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So the difference, I think, is that, as I say, there's, there's really nowhere where it's, well, you know, I mean, there's absolutely nowhere where it's all together in one place. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's, that's really nice about it is that the agency that I'm working with that's, that's um, laying it out has got this fantastic style that they've developed for it and, and kind of added this entirely new dimension to some of the work and that you know they've added illustrations and graphics and all sorts of things that just kind of bring it to life in a way that I wouldn't have been able to do so so yeah hopefully there's even for people who have seen a lot of the stuff that I've done I think there's there's probably something there for them in terms of stuff they wouldn't have seen and also you know and just this really really cool design as well. Yeah. Uh, as you were trawling through hundreds, maybe thousands of things that you'd publish <laughs> to whittle yeah. them down into the hundreds of things yeah. that you're going to publish, what was that experience like? Like, how did, how did you respond to your own words months, maybe years after you'd published them? Well, probably the first response was, was kind of being a little bit overwhelmed by how much there was, you know, because when you're doing something, you know, when you, I don't know, I guess when I'm publishing something once a week, once every couple of weeks, it just accumulates and you don't, you know, I just realised how much content there was there, uh, much as I hate that word, sorry. Um, but that was the first thing. It was like, oh, geez, you know, I've, I've kind of definitely got a book here mm. um, and probably more than that. So so that was the first thing. And then after that, it it sort of became, well, all right, I need to do some sort of prioritisation. And I didn't want there to be too much focus on on one area or another or I didn't want, you know, I didn't want too much really lightweight stuff compared to some of the more analytical work that I've done. So I tried to strike a balance there. And then the kind of, I guess the third thing was that I made note of, of the stuff that had really been well received. And, and you know, something like Twitter is really helpful in that respect because it was pretty obvious things that, you know, had been really mm-hmm. um, popular. So it became a bit of its own prioritisation technique, mm-hmm. if you like. Totally, yeah. totally. And, and as you were going through all this, all, all this content, did you learn anything about yourself? Were you like, oh my gosh, I'm really into topic X or oh my goodness, gosh, I've got an <laughs> issue with topic B. I didn't, I didn't realize I had these hangups. Did you pick up any of these like emotional or intellectual tics? You know, that, I mean, there's a clear theme of, of kind of being disillusioned, I suppose, with, with some of the things that I'm seeing. But I think what I, what I have been able to do reasonably well is to turn that into something that is entertaining rather than being, you know, dark, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. So that's always been kind of my focus with, with this kind of work is that it's not simply whinging, which, mm-hmm. may, and, and <laughs> to be fair, some people probably do perceive it that way, but I try to make it, you know, into something that is entertaining for people and, and, and still has um, a ring of truth about it. Mm. Do you recognise periods in your life where you were not disillusioned? Is this just about advertising? Is it something you've you felt through different phases of your life? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't look. I don't think it's just advertising. And and you know, the other thing probably I should point out is that I'm not. You know, I'm not in advertising per se. We, you know, we do a bit of advertising, but I'm very. I'm really not in that big. Ad, you know, ad agency world. So a lot of what I see is only kind of what I see as a consumer. So I don't feel as though I'm an expert on commenting on that. But, no, I don't think it's been confined to, to this kind of phase. Mm. A lot of what I saw when I was in medicine 
was frankly pretty disillusioning as well. And a lot of that is around systems, I think. You know, the, the, not so much the work itself and, and even the people that are, that are in it, but the way that systems, um, what they do to people, you know, and how people respond to that. Yeah. yeah. Well, so how would you diagnose what the medical system does to people? That, specifically the thing or the things that made you feel disillusioned? Well, in psychiatry at least, the big thing was, was the lack of resources and the pressure that that put on people. So certainly the public system where I worked, um, it was hugely under-resourced and they kind of expected people to be doing the job of you know, two or three people. Mm. And the outcome of that was that everyone gets burnt out and, and patients suffer as a result. And so, so it can be pretty grim. Mm. And, and there's, from what I can tell, there are probably some parallels there with the advertising industry and it seems as though uh, the culture of overwork is... is certainly a big thing in in some some places Mm. and again i think people suffer as a result of it and and the work suffers as a result so yeah i I, there probably has been a bit of a thread running through the phases that i've been through okay as far as the overall theme of the book delusions delusions of branger what are some of the delusions that are most offensive to you (laughs) Mm. well just to think back on a few recent ones I think one of my bugbears has been, has been this whole theme of brand purpose. Not so much, I think, authentic brand purpose, if you like. That's probably a different thing. But this imposed brand purpose that we see with, with a lot of brands now where, where you know, they, they need to have a, a, a kind of a high-minded social purpose to their, to their brands, you know, I think that's frankly just not right. I don't think it's based in reality. I think it rings hollow with, with, with a lot of people. I think there is brand love. The you know the idea of brand love is a, is a delusion that a lot of people have pointed out. People like Bob Hoffman, you know, that, that's again for the most part a fantasy. Mm-hmm. The idea that generations kind of all share the same behaviours. I mean, you know, a lot of us have talked a lot about the the ridiculousness of of, of millennials and the way that they're characterised and so on. Um, I think that's uh, that's a big one. What else? Uh, well, I guess. In recent times, we've seen the we've seen the kind of the inflated metrics from Facebook and and kind of this the whole pivot to video thing, which was clearly just wrong headed. Mm. And yeah, I, th- I think the problem is that we, a lot of these things are are just bandwagons that marketers jump on without having any evidence for it. And yeah, that's that's the, you know the definition of a delusion is is a belief that's held despite evidence to the contrary. And that's essentially what we're dealing with. We, you know, there, there is simply no evidence for, for a lot of this stuff. Mm. And, and why does that alarm you? Why, why do you care about this? Well, I think I care about it because, because there, there are people doing the right thing and, and they are, they're suffering as a result. They're, they're losing their jobs because of it. The, it seems to me as though the wrong people are, are being lionised and, mm. and, and are kind of succeeding despite the fact that what they're doing isn't isn't really effective, and and yeah, I guess that's probably it. Mm. Yeah, why do you thought too deeply about it? Well, you're going to get another question to make you do that, which is why do you <laughs> why do you care about that? I, I guess it's a sense of fairness, really. You know, I, I'm particularly coming from a medical background where you know you, you just can't get by you know on the basis of opinions that don't that aren't based in fact, mm. or or that you don't have some kind of evidence to back up, and. and and so, so I think it is certainly partly historical. That it, that's been the place that I've come from. And to see this, uh, you know, to see conjecture 
be accepted as you know as fact is is disturbing <laughs> to me. Mm. Yeah, uh, Ryan, why do you care about that? <laughs> I don't so, know. It's, Pro- it's, maybe, the last, maybe. it's the last one, I promise. <laughs> you know, I'm sounding like I'm being interviewed on for a, as a politician or something. I, well, probably because I come from a pretty pretty rational background, and and you know my my dad was a doctor. He he wasn't someone to tolerate bullshit. So it's probably been a kind of a long-running feeling that I've had about the world, if Mm. you like. Okay. Would he tolerate your book? I think he would (laughs) have. Yeah. So my dad died a couple of years ago, but but in fact I said in one of my talks that I gave recently that my nose for bullshit has has always been very strong and I think it's something that I inherited from him. Yeah. Um, So, yes, I think he would have, I think he would have, he would like the book. Yeah. He probably wouldn't understand much of it. He said, like he said that he, he read a few of my articles about marketing and didn't have a clue what it, what it was on about. <laughs> did, he, but, did, he, did he have a good sense of humour? He did, yeah, 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 and, and, and pretty, pretty kind of sardonic, I suppose, which is similar to mine. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, I, he was always very sceptical about the, you know, the field that I'd gone into eventually, but I think he would at least be proud of the fact that I'm, I'm taking the piss out of it as well. So, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also mentioned puncturing pretensions, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there any specific pretensions or pretenses, pretensions that we haven't discussed yet that are kind of different? To, is, is a pretension different to a delusion? <laughs> I think that's my question. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it is, and I, and I guess part of the part of the difference there is that to me, a pretension is not really a conviction that's strongly held, mm. you know. And I think that's part of the problem in marketing is that a lot of the stuff that people pass off as being true, they don't actually necessarily believe themselves. It's simply that you know it's easy to sell to people. And I think a lot of the you know, I mean, brand purpose is probably a classic in hindsight in that I think a lot of companies really don't believe that that's the case, but it's become this received wisdom and, and so it's, uh, it's very easy to, to, sell that, to sell that as a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's the difference. Yeah. If, Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, totally. totally. I mean, and, and if your moral code changed overnight, are there, other than brand purpose, are there two other delusions or pretensions that you think you'd be very good at selling? I'd be good at selling. Mm. <laughs> Which ones would you go for? Well, I, I wouldn't, I'm not going to call this a delusion, but I, I think what I do buy into is the idea of evidence-based marketing to some extent. I think, you know, the work of Byron Sharp and, and so on has, I think is really important. It's probably the opposite of what you're saying, but at least I feel comfortable talking in those kinds of terms. What I, I honestly struggle with trying to sell something that I don't believe in, and I try not to do that. Oh, my, my question feels rejected. <laughs> I reject your hypothesis. As yeah, you, want, you take yourself yeah. so seriously, Tarantino Dr. Said Dr. That. Draper. <laughs> okay, so tell me again about these sections of the book. How did you break all this content down into themes that made sense to you? Um, it, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't a very rigorous process, but basically, I looked through everything I had and I thought, okay, I think that there were general pieces about marketing, then some more general pieces about advertising i think brands was a very specific area uh, aside from marketing more broadly and then kind of business and and 
slash kind of LinkedIn <laughs> nonsense, which is one of the chapters. So I think I've I think I've divided it up into about five chapters based on those things. But yeah, it's really not. Uh, <laughs> there's not a strong thread through through each of those chapters. It's just that that seems to be seems to be a reasonable way to categorise it. All right, all right. Which channels are you most active on? Where are you posting? Twitter, yeah, LinkedIn. I'm I'm on reasonably often. Uh, that's about it, really. I mean, I write for our blog, for our company blog. Occasionally, write for Marketing Week and Advertising Health, which is uh, which is a kind of a platform for the ad- health advertising industry in the UK. Okay. Um, but yeah, Twitter's kind of my you know my go-to. That's the main thing. Yeah. So so if we just focus on Twitter and LinkedIn, do you experience different reactions? And different types of interactions with what you post on Twitter compared to LinkedIn. Yes, is the short answer. Um, great, great, I, excellent, I, yeah. excellent <laughs> answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Twitter. There's, I mean, there's a huge difference in in between the two platforms. I think the interaction that you get on Twitter tends to be a lot more light-hearted and you know i think i think i've connected with like minds very much more on twitter than than on linkedin but having said that you know one of the things that people used to say to me was well, oh you can't you know you can't put that on linkedin it's you know it's a, it's a serious platform you can't put that on but but i've i've almost found the opposite i think because of the fact that that the stuff i post is is often uh not very serious i think it really stands out and so i i tend to get a lot of people commenting on LinkedIn now um, just because they're, they're sick of all the earnestness <laughs> and, the, and the kind of self-promotions and all that stuff on LinkedIn. But, yeah, but but absolutely. I mean, Twitter is, you know, I've, I've made genuinely good friends around the world through Twitter, that, you know, people that I know in real life now. And, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a friendlier platform, I think. Okay. Yeah, I want to get into that, but let, let's uh, let's finish off the book because I, I know it's still in progress and you're still probably yeah. working through how you want to talk about it. When, when are you publishing it? How are you going to publish it? Good question. Certainly hoping to publish it by the end of the year. We haven't, we haven't got a definite date yet because I'm still reviewing drafts and stuff like that, but we're going to publish it through Amazon. That's about it. Okay. It's as much as I know at this stage. Very, very cool. Let's chat copywriting community. When did you find these people? Who are they? What are they up to? What do you all get up to together? <laughs> okay, I discovered them probably, well, not long after I joined Twitter, so it probably would have been about 2013, and found them kind of pretty pretty quickly because once you connect to, to kind of a copywriter on Twitter, you, you quickly realise who they're following and, you know, who they're, sharing stuff from and so on. And so I became kind of part of that community, I don't know, probably within a few months actually. Mm-hmm. And oh, I couldn't even name, you know, 10 of them without missing 50 people. But but certainly one of the earliest ones that I encountered with who I believe you've spoken to recently is Vicky Ross. Booyakasha. Um, yeah. <laughs> we all love Vicky. And, you know, once I was connected to her, that was kind of, it just took off after that because she knows everyone. And I've, you know, I've connected with a whole lot of people from the UK particularly because they tend to be the most active in, mm. in that kind of sphere. Mm. Um, so people like uh, Claire Barry, Dave Harland, who I actually spent a memorable week with, those two, um, mm. and another copywriter called Katie Nicole in London. And then I've been to a couple of the Copywriters Unite events as well, which is, which are great. So I've met a whole lot of people there. But, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting community. It's very supportive, particularly I think, you know, it's probably not so important for someone like me being in an agency, but 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 the freelance freelancers on there, I think, really benefit from from having people to bounce off and 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 having that support on there. So, 
so yeah, it's one of the really kind of positive <laughs> parts of Twitter from from my experience. Totally, totally. Yeah, is it fair to say, like in the early days, I, I felt like copywriters and, and art directors were more reserved, more reluctant to express themselves spontaneously through the internet, perhaps because their day jobs were all about constant spontaneity of expression, uh, and also I think because people doing those jobs are often worried about getting judged and or don't, didn't, just didn't value it. And so to see that kind of copywriting community pop up uh, from my point of view is like, it's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. It's awesome that this, that this exists because the reality for a lot of copywriters in very competitive creative departments is that it, I think it must be more, it seems more guarded and competitive and yeah. uh, less collaborative. Is that a fair yeah. adjudication? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, certainly from what I understand, you know, from, from, from big agency land. And it's absolutely supportive. You know, I, I, I've very rarely seen certainly not negativity between copywriters. I think there, there is kind of a... I, I've seen people comment on the fact that, you know, we can be quite critical of, of stuff that we see out there. But generally speaking, I think people understand the fact that often it's not the, you know, it's not necessarily the fault of the copywriter per se. You know, there will have been a, a long process that's gone through and copy doesn't always end up the way that you want it to. Um, but I think on, you know, in terms of the interactions, mm-hmm. absolutely. People are really, you know, happy to, to give their advice, to make connections with people, with, you know, people looking for jobs and, and provide, you know, constructive feedback and all that kind of stuff. So all, all the things that you would hope for. In, a, in an agency environment, and I think it is a great thing to witness. And, a, and, a, and there are parallels as well, I think, with, with the strategy community as well that you would have seen, and a lot of crossover as well. I mean, a lot of us know each other. Yeah. And, and I think it's been a really, really kind of, yeah, it's something that obviously I didn't even know existed before I joined Twitter. So, so yeah, it's been really good. Awesome, awesome. Uh, you know me, I like a little bit of a list, but I know you and you like a little bit of a list. <laughs> if, if you think through some of those names that you've just mentioned... Take yourself yep. back to your relatively recent trip to London town. Yeah. Yeah. What are five things that are most commonly discussed right now among the copywriting community? Five things. Okay. Um, <laughs> hey, Brian, are you, okay? are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> I'll take notes. Uh, well, bad copy is probably, as much as I just said how, how supportive we all are, bad copy is probably the thing that gets the most discussion. Mm-hmm. And, and when I say bad copy, I mean really, really awful, you know, just embarrassing stuff. Like the, I think you saw, saw the post today that Vicky posted, which was an ad that, um, well, what was it now? Lim- was it? Unlimit, oh. unlimit the more. Yeah. Uh, which is, for, which is, for Kia. Which is just incredible what does that um, mean and if you wrote uh, no, if you wrote that please you know please write other things you know we don't want to pick on you but un- unlimit the more not like, that. that's not like that's not yes. what what is that yeah exactly i don't know i can't i can't even begin to understand it yeah, um, so, okay, so, so that so kind of stuff tends to tends to get a fair bit of fair bit of chat going but then by you know by the same token and so i'll call this number two is is really good copywriting you know i think when something comes out such as I'm just thinking of recent examples, you know, the Hope is Power campaign from Uncommon, that just catches fire in the copywriting community because everybody can appreciate how good it is um, and, it, and, you know, just kind of <laughs> becomes very reverential towards it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the big issues, that, uh, and not that I'm subject to this, but chasing up payments 
mm-hmm. for three ounces. That's mm-hmm. just a huge issue by the looks of it. And and you know a lot of a lot of people talk about the strategies that they use to to try and get around this. And you know I mean it, it, it's incredible to me that that it's even an issue that, that people you know won't pay on time or won't pay at all. But that's you know it's, obviously this is something that's you know really important to people. They you know it, it can be it's their livelihood. So. So there, there seems to be a bit of a groundswell for, for fighting back against that. Mm-hmm. Then on the same kind of freelance theme, I think a lot of, a lot of the copywriters on Twitter talk about tips in general for, for how they deal with their clients. And, it, and it's funny because a lot of it isn't even about the work mm-hmm. but more about the business side of, of you know, what they're doing. Yep. And that's where, that's where that community, I think, comes in you know really handy for a lot of people because a lot of them particularly when they're starting out don't you know they sort of think about it as being well all they need to do is just write yeah, yeah, <laughs> every yeah. day and and the rest of it will take care of itself and yeah and that's very much not the not the reality that's correct um yeah and then i think probably i don't know if there's a fifth one it's probably the the you know agency copywriters talking about agency world and you know some of the some of the battles that they face, um, you know, day to day and the long hours and, um, <laughs> you know, getting stuff through client approval processes and all that kind of thing. So, so yeah, it tends to be a bit of a mixed bag, but I think probably the, the good and the, and the support and that probably outweighs the more negative aspects. Yeah, so I, I'll, do, I'll do a little recap. We've got bad copy, good copy, getting paid, client management, <laughs> yeah. and the large agency world. Uh, every now and then I see tweets about feedback, but I guess we could put that in under client management, like how, yeah. how, cli- how clients give feedback, whether they acknowledge the writer, the quality of the writing, or just kind of give this uh, slightly offensive, unthoughtful feedback. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's a good point. That's probably worth worth a point on its own. You know, I think we all struggle with feedback to some extent. Um, I think as you spend more time in the game, you, you certainly get used to, <laughs> you get a thicker skin, hopefully. But you also learn how to respond to it and, and how to kind of take it as being something constructive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yes, that's a big issue, I think, you know, for a lot of people. Can, can you teach us a little bit about feedback? Like what are some questions or phrases that people can use that you might use either to yourself or reviewing someone else's copy? I mean, you are head of copy, right? So you must review a lot of copy. Yeah, yeah, fair bit. I think one of the big things that I use is, is just simply to hark back to what I know works. And I suppose this is going a little bit back to that evidence-based um, issue. So, you know, if there, if there are certain words or phrases that, that we know are more effective or if there's jargon that we know is definitely not effective, then I try to try to kind of keep it as, as rational as I can rather than kind of making it an emotive response. And always bring it back to, you know, to the audience because I think so often clients do get caught up in, in kind of subjective feedback and their own opinion of, of you know, of <laughs> certain words or what they think is going to work when and forgetting that, you know, they're, they're not the target market. So that tends to probably be the biggest one. Mm-hmm. What, what's an example of useless feedback? <laughs> I don't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you know, that, I mean, generally that, that is the, that's the bad one. I don't like it and then without having any, any reason for saying it other than kind of, you know, a subjective response mm. um, because that's not very helpful. What's the what's an example of either good feedback or uh, like good questions connected to getting to feedback? I think well, I mean, a, a good one generally is if if there's a genuine insight from say 
you know, from your market research or from your understanding of the audience. If, if, if you can frame it in that way, you know, this is, this is what we found, something that actually has um, a basis in, you know, in fact, mm-hmm. um, then that can be, I think the good thing about that is that not only is there a basis for, for changing something you've written, but, but it also takes, again, takes out the emotion from it and doesn't make it just, well, this is my opinion. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What are your hopes for this book about delusion, pretension, and disillusionment? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, are you, what are your hopes for all that? I, I hope that people will like it and be entertained by it, and that's kind of about it, really. I, I, I don't have any targets or anything like that for sales i'm not expecting to 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 make any money out of it really i i think that i i hope that people kind of learn something from it as well a little bit but overall i guess the other thing is that it's you know it's quite a nice showcase for for me and for and for this agency that i'm working with gas um yeah and that's about it i (laughs) I didn't set out with with much of a you know with very clear objectives about what i wanted to get out of it but that's Mm. Delusions of Brandure. It's cool. It's a cool title. Uh, best wishes with Thanks. it. It's, it's so fun. And like, you know, you have to create a catalog. You can't just do one of these things. You have to do a whole <laughs> lifetime of those. You know, that's what's happening, right? You're setting yourself up for that. Is that is that how it works? Yeah. Yep. That's okay. what I. That's right. what. I, that's what I believe. That's what, <laughs> totally what I believe about this kind of stuff. Uh, if people want to follow along and find out when you're launching things and follow mm. you on the internet, where are the best places? Our Twitter, I think, would probably be the best one. So, Dr. Underscore Draper. But we'll kind of be promoting as much as we can when we, when we launch it, thinking about setting up a landing page and that kind of thing. So, uh, but yeah, Twitter's probably the, probably the easiest. Yeah. Very cool, very cool. All right, well, yeah, thank you for sharing that you're going to be doing this. Best wishes with the book. Thank you um, very I'm much. I'm sure you, you've, you've got this huge fan base out there and I think it's, <laughs> it's just going to keep growing and the book will help it grow. So, look forward to seeing what you're up to in the future. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, thanks very much, Mark. Peace.